And we are live. Welcome to another episode of Roasting Marshmallows. My name is Rolf Suet, and I am your host. Different problems need different solutions. Uh, an approach that aids in decision-making is the Knefin framework, which was created in 1999 by Dave Snowden and was born with principles related to theories of how we perceive things. Uh, Knefin is a word in Welsh origin that means habitat or place of many belongings. Knefin is a model that can be used in different sectors at different levels in an organization and in different contexts. In fact, context is the key word for Knefin. Its main use is for effective decision-making based on the analysis of the context in which we are inserted. Uh, so we, we are roasting marshmallows today with Dave Snowden, founder and chief scientific officer of the Knefin Company, uh, formerly known as Cognitive Edge. I think they just rebranded a few days ago. Yeah, uh, that was old. Uh, it used to be... Yeah. I'm sorry? It's 48 hours old, the rebranding. Yeah, exactly. So we're, uh, we're hot off the press there. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're a consulting firm specialized in complexity and sense making to thrive in a complex world. Uh, Dave's specialties include sense making, knowledge management, complexity science applied to organizations and narrative. Dave is well known for his pragmatic cynicism and iconoclastic style and is a popular and passionate keynote speaker. Uh, in fact, he just finished a keynote right now. So uh, welcome, Dave. And uh, which, which conference did you uh, happen to have a keynote at? It was an agile conference in Brazil. I think it, I think it was a scrum scrum focused event okay and uh i'm joined today by arno and Anik. uh welcome guys thanks thanks for having me but yeah thanks i'm yeah. very uh, looking forward to this conversation because i don't remember when it was actually the first time that i came across the well the knefi framework but since then it definitely helped me to change the way how i see things so i'm quite curious to uh yeah ask a lot of questions here yeah cool so um, yeah, the first uh, question that I, that I basically had is like the, the I mean, we're reading about the Knefin framework to prepare for this podcast, and uh, you know, the, there's a, a lot of resources on the on the subject. But uh, how did it, um, yeah, how did it evolve for you? Where did it start, and how did it um, help you? It started so um, I was running strategy for a company called Data Sciences. Um, and my previous career was building decision support systems. So I moved from designing and building them for people like Guinness to managing the business unit. And then to, I, I had this really interesting job. Every time we acquired something, I got all the things other mm -hmm. business managers didn't want. Because I was really good at finding okay. sort of things which could work, which nobody expected. And I was quite good at close down as well. So I, I did that. So that also brought me into logistics, which was quite important for later. Some of the early pioneering okay. systems on um, variable stop control. So either way, I was, we were an IT company, IBM bought us. Um, I created a thing called the Genus program, which was our turnaround program. So we were a management buyout and the shares had collapsed to like a penny. And I was one of five of the 50 okay. who did the buyout still left, all right? And this was the turnaround program where we put together legacy system management with RAD, JAD, and object orientation, which nobody had thought to put together. And that was a turnaround program. So that attracted IBM. We were sold to IBM as a premium. And I got okay. given a role in IBM to go away and do interesting things and upset people. Actually, I had a target based <laughs> on people at senior level IBM demanding in writing I was fired. I had a, a, a manager who had a sense of humor so he created a target based on that, which I over succeeded in. Right? Um, and part of my okay. job really was to look at new things within services. This was part of trying to change IBM into a service company. That was why they bought us. Yeah? And that brought me into what was then an emergent field of knowledge management. Yeah. After the Nanaka Tachikuchi book an HBR paper, um, which ironically also, Nanaka also triggered Scrum. So I, I've encountered Nanaka twice and disagreed twice. Right? Um, and I met a guy called Max Brasso, who then went on to be a mentor. He died recently and tragically. Wrote a book called Knowledge Assets, okay. which everybody should read. And that looked at the balance of abstraction, codification, and diffusion. So it, it, was, a, it was a flow type framework in a, in a world of two by twos. This was a three dimensional framework, which says things flow around and different things are possible in different contexts. So we ran a workshop yep. at Warwick University together where we both had visiting fellowships. And Kinevin effectively was my initial take on the iSpace, and then it developed from that. 
And I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things which make Kenevin strong. One is, I think what Henrique said, is that people pick it up and use it without being trained in it. And I'm quite yeah. proud of that. If you go on Google Scholar, you'll find thousands of people make, using Kenevin to make sense of the world without the need yeah. to be trained. And that's because I've always designed frameworks. And by the way, it's a framework, not a model. That's an important distinction. Um, okay. on the, with what's called the back of a table napkin test. If you can't draw a framework on the back that? of a table napkin from memory, it has no utility for sense-making. Anything else is a dependency okay. frame. So that was one aspect. And I think the other aspect is that it's evolved substantially over time. In its 1996 version, it's actually a sort of two by two. And then by 1999, it develops the fifth dimension. And if you look back on the blog, I updated every March, which is St. David's Day, patron saint of Wales. All right. Yeah. Um, you'll find that it's gone through multiple iterations and changes over time as practice and theories evolve. So it isn't a one-time framework based on a one-time study. It's been an evolution in its own right. All right. One, yeah. one thing that I like, uh, uh, I don't per se get it, and I don't know how uh, how is it for you, but like I follow you on Twitter, I follow a lot of other people, and sometimes goes on conversations about complexity and about kinefing. And there are some people who are quite judgmental about it, like, oh, Kinefin, they don't understand, or Dave doesn't understand complexity, and then goes in a bit of a weird vibe. And I'm like, I don't understand, because for me, the frameworks helps me to think, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And there is so much, some people in a negative part of it that, what is your take on this? Like, does this upset you? Is this something that they don't understand complexity? Uh, I mean, uh I love Twitter battles, all right? If you want to take me on on social media, feel free. Right? Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll carry on way after I should do with everybody telling me to stop. I quite enjoy it. It's entertaining, right? <laughs> I, think it I, don't, I haven't seen anybody say I don't understand complexity for a long time. Occasionally, you get a few people from a systems thinking background who get upset about the way I use chaos because it's not the same way that physicists use chaos. Right, but it's the way everybody using complexity in social sciences uses it, right? Um, and since you know, certainly Durham University, who produced this sort of every two years map of complexity, you know, put me on the map with applied complexity. I yet see anybody who said I don't understand it. There's a lot of people coming from a systems thinking background who do not like the fact that I and other people say complexity is not the same thing as systems thinking. Yeah. So it has very okay. different origins. So the origins of complexity science are in physics and mathematics and biology and chemistry. They're not in cybernetics, systems dynamics, soft systems, yeah, ACOF, all of those sort of things. So the natural science background mm -hmm. is key. And one of the points I was making this to, to Mike the other day in a debate, he's critical systems thinking, is kind of like, and nobody's disputing you guys dealt with complexity. But there again, people built canals based on a practical knowledge of gravity. But then Newton came along and we had a science and everything changed. Yeah. yeah so there yeah, is yeah. a school of thought which wants to homogenize complexity into system thinking. And I fight that one, right? Um, because it, it, it's very different in that sense. I think then you've got the other group, shall we just call it the shallow approach to complexity, right? Or the shallow way to complexity where people have read a Wikipedia article and skimmed something and think they understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of those around. And I do tend to take them on for the fun of it, to be quite honest. I'm, I must admit, it's a sort of evening entertainment job for me rather than something Okay, serious. so I might uh, quit this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's... I mean, it is quite interesting. I mean, we, we have made a distinction between computational complexity and anthro-complexity. So you'll find the people who are heavily into computational modeling don't like what we're doing on the anthro side. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get yeah. hyped into Santa Fe every now and then to have an argument, all right? And the basic principle of, of anthro complexity is human beings have intelligence, intentionality, yeah, and, you know, all sorts of other factors which you don't see in insects or, or birds flocking. Yeah. So we see that as yeah. a distinct field. and. To be quite honest, these days I talk much more about naturalizing sense making. So sense making is how do I make sense of the world so I can act in it. So it has a very pragmatic approach. And naturalizing is a reference to philosophy to base what you do in the natural sciences. And complexity science is one of them. But we also use cognitive neuroscience and a whole body of other material. Yeah? So we wouldn't see ourselves as being 
a complexity business. Complexity is one of the things we draw on in what we do. Yeah, exactly. And it, does that have to do, because I, I saw a few uh, videos of you on YouTube where you've uh, also made like a comparison between, uh, you know, ancient man standing uh, in Africa somewhere facing uh, facing a lion, uh, <laughs> whereas, you know, the complexity and analysis of the situation is not really helping you survive? Yeah, and I think that's, that's what we, we've drawn extensively on, not only cognitive neuroscience, but evolutionary psychology and things like epigenetics, which is revolutionizing biology, right? And so yeah. the whole naturalizing movement is to deal with human beings as, as they have evolved to be collectively and individually. Exactly. And not to deal with things as you think they should be. And I think that's where systems thinking is still stuck. It's stuck in that enlightenment. Mo it's stuck in the enlightenment model, which is a real problem. You know, the assumption that everything is what Voltaire satirized in Candide, right? You know, the, the best of all possible worlds. Um, so it, it starts with the assumption, that, and this is why Nora Bates and I, for example, we did a big webinar last night, which had 1,500 people on it, right? And both of us are saying adult maturity models and step models are fundamentally wrong. They're, they're an enlightenment cultural concept, which assumes that everything is progressing, yeah? And that, yeah. that's actually bad science. Okay. Um, I think so. Yeah. I think I know I was going to say something. Yeah, because um, I, uh, I also watched a few of your videos and you mentioned the systems thinking as well, like a few times, that it's not about the, uh, uh, the scientists talking about systematic change, not the individual change. And that apparently led for you to an argument with Peter Sange, which I find quite nice to listen to as well. Um, <clears throat> and I've never had his book helped me a lot. His book is pretty nice, actually. He'll never turn up to have the discussion. Yeah. Well, I, I actually mean, invited him to the podcast as well, but he he never responded. So that's a <laughs> yeah, that's down off right. There you go. It was meant to be a three-way thing in Washington, all right. So I mean, I was a keynote at his conference <laughs> in the end, um, and he didn't even speak to his other keynotes, all right, which is bad as far as I'm concerned. Oh. Then there's a conference in Washington, and it was meant to be me, Sangi, and so Sengi on yourself. Bruce, I think. Each of us was meant to present for twenty minutes, and the other two would respond for twenty minutes. So yeah. tickets were selling out for this event because that confrontation we waited for a long time. And then Peter's people turned up. You never get to meet Peter. He's far too important to talk with other people, right? And said that Peter wasn't prepared oh, to talk anymore. He needed the whole hour. And he was only prepared to take positive uh, responses, not difficult questions. So Bruce and I went away and recorded. So, so if he's listening, he could uh, join. <laughs> it was, um, that was when I first said that he and Otto Sharmaga were neo-colonialists. And they are. So they, they basically yeah, got... Because I saw you mentioning that as well. So Sharmaga the same, right? They, they've got a model of society based on white liberal MIT graduates, yeah? Um, yeah. And hmm. they think if everybody was like them, the world would be a wonderful place. And the reality is the world is never going to be like them, thank God, right? It's far more complex <laughs> in the way it works. Yeah. But you mentioned in the uh, with the discussion as well that they claim it's about changing the individual, while you say it's more about system change. And I think I, you I mentioned that we, we haven't got enough individual. time for that. You ain't got enough Sorry? time, and I'm not sure it's ethical. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and, what and does that, that mean? We ain't got enough time for that. Yeah. Well, it's also if you look at it, they have a sort of very idealized model of what a human being should be like. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very idealistic. It's very based on a very specific liberal culture, right? And I don't mm -hmm. think you have any right to talk about people's mindsets or try and determine their culture or determine how they respond. You're perfectly entitled to define yep. how people interact with other people. And people change more yeah. based on interactions than they do based on personal change. Yeah. So, for example, we have a method called entangled trios which is designed to network every, to create an informal network across the silos very quickly within a year for everybody to within two degrees of separation of everybody else. We don't worry about what people are like. We focus on how they network so they can come together in different contexts and different combinations. Right. So for me, is it, it's, it's, this belief yeah. that you have to change people's mindset is fundamentally flawed both ethically and practically. 
you have to work with people with multiple different views, and that's part of the strength of humans, is what we call coherent heterogeneity rather than homogeneity. Yeah? So if you look at yeah. most of the stuff yeah. which has come out of the popular end of systems thinking, which is people like Senge, it tries to homogenize the organization. It wants, you know, it has, it wants everybody to be aligned behind common values, common principles, yeah? And I remember one of the other yeah. things I said at the Senge conference once, if, you know, the good news is that will never happen. The bad news is if it ever did, the organization would lose all resilience because it would lose requisite variety. So the way I normally illustrate that, I'm wearing a Welsh rugby jersey at the moment, all right? Um, and in theory, <laughs> next weekend, I should be going to watch my team Cardiff play to lose, but we've been at the start of the European <laughs> Championship. Be, but we've had our team stuck in South Africa. So we're going to have to pay the academy side against the European champions. Yeah? So, yeah, we're all going to go and support it, but we expect to lose substantially. Right? But Cardiff are a highly... Substantially, <laughs> even. We play at the Arms Park, all right? We're, you know, we, we follow the rules. We're, we're, we're really good people. And there are those bastards down the road in Clinatley who basically are, are dirty players who break the rules and bribe referees, right? Um, mm. But the minute the English arrive, we're all Welsh. So we're different yeah. in one context and we're the same in another context. And I think that's yeah. what's yeah. missing in all of the popular forms of systems thinking. That concept of requisite diversity or better coherent heterogeneity. Yeah, the and that actually, if you think about it, fits in more with the sort of you know, distributed tribal extended family structure that we evolved for. And and the modern stuff coming. But does this also of, mean that? Uh, so does this also mean that you cannot have like values, common values? No, common values are a waste of time. Complete waste of time. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's one of one anthropology. Okay. If you write your values down, you've just lost them because you've just taught people the language of power. So they'll just parrot that language back at you. I, mean, I lived in IBM for years, all right? The minute there was a new set of value statement out, everybody used find and replace in Word, and the new language suddenly appeared magically in old documents, all right? Um, values are things which are actually unarticulated, but they're understood, all right, in terms of the way it works. Mm. And what matters is coherence, you know, not the values. Again, it's this, it's this fundamental error of trying to find, it's, it's like Dawkins as well, right? It's, it's trying, with his selfish gene, it's trying to find the fundamental unit which will give you predictability over outcome. And you can't do yeah. that with values any more than you can do it with genes. Yeah? Um, yeah. So you have to, you okay. have to manage... You, you, what you're managing is emergence, all right? So you, you, you can't pre... And most people, it's, it's like, yeah. The thing I found the other day, I'm enjoying myself satirizing some of the fellow speakers at a conference I'm coming up at the moment. I'm checking out their websites and issuing tweets and blogs, yeah? And one of them is actually yep. offering for $1,016, you can run a training course and it'll make you a certified happiness practitioner. Now... <laughs> When people start to do too. this, this is an area of perversion I don't want to go near, right? The point is happiness yeah, arises. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure organizations need to be happy. I mean, that's the old company song crap again. IBM actually had a company song book. What you need is for people, you know, there's all sorts of other words, like not being stressed and surviving and having a life out of, outside work. Yeah? So I yeah. think that the danger is people keep looking at, properties which have emerged over time and then they try and engineer those properties in and they don't realize those are the consequences of smaller actions much earlier on it's like an agile anybody who says they've adopted a spotify model needs to go and talk to spotify because they point out yeah, there yeah. isn't a spotify model it's the end result of a, of a series yeah. of things we did over time and the, the minute you talk about values or happiness or leadership qualities any of those you're talking about emergent properties, which are things you can monitor for, but you can't actually directly manage. So, yeah. like, how, how do you look at it from the point of view of, uh, like, we spoke now about Agile, like the Agile manufacturer, right? They have values. Then would you say those values are also useless? I think I, no, I know. I mean, the manifesto is fine, all right? I mean, remember, there were three origins on the manifesto. So one was XP, yeah. the other was Scrum, and the third was DSDM. Yeah, and yeah. I was one of the three founders of DSDM. Um, we actually met in a pub in Cheltenham and for a meal. We didn't need a ski resort for a week. 
but critically, we GST haven't been put together between competitors. Yeah, we said we can't okay. make the proprietary. So I was data sciences. There was a woman from Logica. There was Ed Holt from Cambridge, right? And we put together a consortium between people who are fiercely competitive on the basis creating a standard for something new between competitors would let it grow. Now, what actually happened in, in, in the startup is DSDM was largely neglected, all right? Scrum was high abstraction, high codification, whereas XP wasn't, yeah? And I famously said that, mm. you know, Agile grew around. The spirit of Agile was really in XP with people like Kent and the like. Yeah, but yep. Scrum was more easily codifiable, so it built itself around Scrum. And I remember getting cheered by the XP people at the conference, and I thought I'd better point it out. And I said, the trouble is that nobody in XP is able to explain what they do to ordinary mortals, so they could never scale anyway. And they're still trying to work out whether that was an insult or a compliment, which told you everything. Right? <laughs> so, I think the problem is Scrum, which is an extremely effective technique. I've just been ex talking about that. In Kinevin terms, it's a liminal technique. It's one of the most powerful software techniques ever developed to put something over the boundary for complexity mm -hmm. to order. It's not a framework, it's a collection of yeah. methods. But it came to yeah, dominate, yeah. and it set the pattern of framework certification control training, yeah. which has actually carried on ever since, and includes a sort of antithesis of of, agile, of agility, which is the um, safe board, yeah, which basically anything yeah. you want a certificate in, Dean will put it into his model and sell you a certificate. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it doesn't uh, uh, pass the napkin criteria that you. If anybody's interested in getting in touch, so we put all our methods into open source um, last year. Yeah. And the reason okay. we did that is when a market starts to grow, you, ma you make things open, you don't close them off. Yet you close things off when yeah, you're yeah. creating something because otherwise you'll be homogenized. But when the market starts yep. to grow, imitation is a good idea because it means the market grows. Yeah. So one of the things we're yeah. putting together is, and we're working with Comic Agile and other people on this, is to take all of the Agile methods like Scrum and Kanban and so on, and break them down into their lowest coherent unit. So mm -hmm. for Scrum, that's something like a sprint or a retrospective or a storyboard. And we're actually creating facilitation kits, which are that the core kit is branded neutrally, yeah? Uh, we have our own methods, which are branded as the Kinevin company, but other people like, um, you know, team, the team topologies guys are putting their own methods into yep. the same framework. And the idea is that mm -hmm. you can okay. basically take all of these methods from different people and assemble them in different combinations to define how you run a project. And that will allow yeah, me... Yeah. They're going to get certification? Now, well, it, I'll come back to that. It will allow me to peel out, for example, a sprint from Scrum and replace it with a three-month time box. Yep. So the idea is to effectively that context available approach. And we're looking at that at yep. 35 people on methods, but not on the whole approach. So when a method is defined to the system, it has training associated with it, and it has an experience bar where you have to report experience. So you can't be certified in Scrum, you might be certified to manage a sprint, for example. Yeah. And I think I think that's yeah, yeah. a that way to go, right? Yeah, that makes sense to me. But then I'm I'm still a bit confused on how would I distinct between the idea that, for example, company value is useless, but a manifesto that has values would have some use. A manifesto. How should I interpret that? Movement, all right. It's like, well, I mean, you just take the Bible or any religious text. All right, they start huge movements. Do people follow them rigidly? No, they don't. All right. Some do. No. no. And, yeah, the agile do, manifesto yeah. is written in a time and place. Yeah, so it swings the pendulum from IT to user. And these days, to be honest, we need to swing the pendulum back a bit, right? Because, yep. you know, Why do you think technology development is so fast, users don't know what to ask for. Yeah. So what, yep. one of the things we've, we've created recently, which we're launching, is mapping unarticulated needs. Because if you can map unarticulated needs and you can use existing technology to satisfy those, you can do a damn sight more. Mm -hmm than a traditional software development, right? So I think the manifesto, and the manifesto doesn't exclude things. That's the other thing. It says, we need to do this more than we need to do this, but we still need to do the other thing, right? So yeah, yeah. 
And that's what Kinevin does. Kinevin says there are ordered systems and complex systems, and it's not that they're right or wrong. They're wrong or right in different contexts. Yeah. And, and speaking of these contexts, because I, I had a question about the, um, the difference between a complicated and a complex context, and how, how would I recognize in, in which of those contexts I would be? Okay, so there's, there's a whole set of methods around this, which we train people on, which use okay. metaphors or real cases to actually define the, the domains and the boundary conditions by things that people already understand. So that they can say, well, okay. we agreed these were complex. It looks more like these and these things. So we'll agree it's complex. And that's a, a narrative based definition. But if you want a really simple one, it's, a, it's a fascinating. It's an easy heuristic. If the evidence supports con contradictory hypotheses about what you should do, and you can't resolve which hypothesis is right on an evidence base in the time frame you have for making a decision, then it's complex. And instead right. of trying to resolve it, you actually do parallel safe to fail experiments. And by the way, that's why Scrum is a liminal technique. It doesn't do things in parallel. It does them in sequence. Okay. Yeah. So in a, in a truly, in, in a main domain complex thing, you're doing lots of things in parallel. So for example, one of the methods we created is to create a trio comprised of a, you know, a young, bright, fast coder developer who's got no knowledge of the system as whole, over whole, and that's key. They're naive. And an experienced mm -hmm. systems architect or end system tester, somebody who sees the system as a whole, and a user trained to talk to IT people. We find it a lot easier to train users to talk to IT people and get IT people to understand users. You know? And so we throw 15 triads at a problem for a week and see what they come up with. And then that goes into the backlog on Scrum. Yeah, so the key thing to understand complexity is large-scale parallel processes or, you know, another technique we have, which is forced mutation over 48 hours. You've got to introduce high levels of variety before you commit resources. Yeah. So it, it's changing okay. the input into most of the agile techniques, which matters. And, and people aren't thinking about that because they've got this psyche, which users know what to ask for. And, and, and that, yeah. what they want to do is they want to deliver what the users have asked because then they can get the velocity right. And actually, if you're really doing value train mapping, you need to deliver things that the users didn't know they wanted till they got them, and then they found them more valuable. And yeah, most yeah. of the agile methods don't support that approach. So we're, we're building that in at the front. Okay. And it's, it's the manufacturing yeah, method. So... It's kind of like, yeah, the whole of agile methods are built on manufacturing concepts. It's tell us what we want, and we'll produce it in the most efficient way. Whereas actually we're dealing mm -hmm. with these days, software is complex ecosystems. Yeah. And you, yeah. you need, you need discrete software units and people units, which interact around scaffolding so that applications can emerge in context rather than everything being designed up front, which is how the internet grew. Nobody designed the current mm -hmm. internet. It's a scaffolding no. and a set of objects which interact and produce novelty. And that's where we need to be going. And uh, like, because you mentioned this trio thing and the complexity, let's say about software, right? I can understand that you say like several things happen in parallel. And I could imagine that, let's say, if you have a software team building with Scrum, trying to do the thing right, but then you have this other trio trying to figure out what is the next thing to build, would those things happen in parallel? I used before Scrum. By the time you hit Scrum, you're committing too many resources and there's too much at stake to people if it fails. If you go back to Ken's original stuff, he basically says, I think I can't remember the exact figure, but he expects roughly half of, of sprints to fail, but they don't. Because by the time you get into a sprint, you've got too much resource committed. Now, if you look at what we're doing with trios, it's a very light commitment on resource to define what goes into a scrum. And, and the, yeah. the, I mean, this is, I've got three major frameworks, all right? One is Kinevin, the other is Fractious Curves. The other one, which we're finishing off at the moment called the S-Dry model, it's going to have a Welsh word eventually right and um, what that basically argues is you have to manage energy gradients so whatever has the lowest energy gradient will win okay and you know yeah. the, the fact that you want something if, if you want something and it goes against the natural way that people work it will be a huge fight and you won't achieve it anyway hmm? yeah and the, the and quick way i have a phrase is you have to make the energy gradient of virtue less than the energy energy gradient of sin, which any any 
parent will understand immediately. Yeah. You have to make it well, easier parents in there. to do the yeah. right thing and harder for them to do the yeah. wrong thing. You can't tell them exactly. what to do. Yeah. I tried that, by the way. It's very hard. Yeah, well, it's why the children's yeah. party story is one of the most popular teaching stories I've created, because people resonate with it immediately, right? Actually, I yeah. found that story to be yeah. very entertaining, because every time I hear you telling that story, I'm like, you know, it makes sense, but I don't understand why companies still then do different. And but I maybe you can tell it again, because I like Time to time. I put a piece of inquiry as a target once, yeah? Nice thing about a teaching story, if you're a storyteller, is you can add you can add new things into it when you spot people in an audience. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it's the same with the uh, with the gorilla story. I really like that one as well with the with the X-rays and, and yeah, looking at that one, that was pretty cool. And it, it makes uh, the point people can't can't challenge that, right? But that, that's what we mean by naturalizing. Yeah. So we say natural science is a constraint. We know that 83% yeah. will not see the gorilla, so we can't assume that people will see a gorilla if we train them better. We have to create systems which make the 17% more visible. And and that's this deep pragmatism yeah. of taking a natural science approach. Yeah? Then why is that so hard for us to do it? Or in the sense of like, uh, because I can imagine no, that is also maybe a limitation in our brain? It's a sound. No, it's not. It's not in the brain. It's it's in the social interaction. So what happened in the eighties? And like, yeah, I kind of was there for when this happened. Systems thinking came in. I mean, lots of people in agile condemn Taylorism. They're not condemning Taylorism. They're condemning systems thinking. Yeah, I mean, Taylorism automated what could be automated, but didn't automate other things. Didn't have four and five year plans. Have apprentice models of management. Yeah, so actually where the original Denning stuff comes from is actually from Taylorism, all right, in terms of the way it works. Yeah. What happens in the 80s or 90s, we get into business process re-engineering, Six Sigma and learning organization, all of which are engineering approaches. So, and that's when we get into zero-based budgeting, the, the, the second page of re-engineering the corporation. And that, that book triggered the growth of management consultancies and the whole of what come after the next four or five decades. There's nothing that has happened in the past that has any relevance to the present. That's what it says. Mm. Because the belief was we're building companies afresh on a greenfield site. And, you know, one of the things we've argued in complexity is you're always on a brownfield site. There's always a history. That's what Canavi means as language. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, yeah. most people, exactly. when they condemn Taylor, are actually condemning, you know, the early stages of systems thinking. If you go back to Taylor, Taylor's motivation was to humanize work. Yeah. And just remember, when he's writing, physical labor kills a hell of a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the manufacturing production line was a huge improvement on what came before. Yeah. And so people, yeah, and, exactly. and I remember that because I got beaten up by Peter Drucker over this. Yeah. And I, I made the same error. And, you know, if you, you've ever stood on a stage in San Diego having... Peter Drucker take you apart, you end up with a puddle of humiliation on the stage. Yeah, and he sort of decided it was retrievable, so took me out for dinner, and then we taught a bunch of courses together. But one of the things I learned from that is fundamentally, Taylorism and complexity thinking have a lot in common, because they recognize the role of human judgment. Whereas what systems thinking has tried to do for the last three decades is remove any human judgment from a system. Yeah, you know, in that, sense, okay, with then I... process, it's designed to destroy diversity because engineers like things which are actually engineered, yeah, to produce yeah. an outcome. Whereas actually, we're dealing with highly complex ecosystems. Yeah, because they also say quite clear on the system thinking that basically the interactions is what makes things work, right? It's not the individuals yeah, per se. We started so. to say that of recent years when we in complexity started to say it heavily, right? I mean, it's there in some things, all right? So, I mean, it, it's quite interesting because systems thinking isn't a common canon, all right? You've got systems dynamics, yeah? Mm. Um, which yeah. is actually where Senge comes from. <clears throat> and a lot of the systems thinking hate that. You've got cybernetics with beer, Right. And I've argued for a long time that if Beer had known about complexity, he'd have never created the VSM model. Yeah. It's just he didn't have right. the science. Right. 
And then you've yeah. got the soft system and stuff from Checkland, which I used a hell of a lot back in the 80s and 90s. That's where I got into narrative, was using Peter's work. Yeah. And Michael Jackson's okay. the modern inheritor of that. So there are different things. And they're all, to, to quote St. Paul in Corinthians, all right, they're all seen as through a glass darkly. So the early days of systems thinking, they're, they're, they're realizing we need to think systematically. We can't think in linear ways. What happens when complexity thinking comes along, together with some of the other sciences, I mean, the advances in cognitive science and biology are huge. Yeah? And all of a sudden, we've got a different yeah. way of looking at things, which is a lot simpler. So I pay all homage to systems thinking, but it's time to move on. Yeah. It's, it's the same as... So in you think uh, people should not study that anymore? I for example, study systems I mean, I, I've studied a hell of a lot of it, all right? It's, there's a huge amount of value. There's some very pragmatic methods which you can bring across. Yeah, you know, methods, even if the theory isn't right, yeah, you know, actually have value, right? Um, and, yeah, you know, I mean, you take another thing just to be even more controversial. You know, the, the single best thing people in organizational design could do is get rid of any method based on Freud or Jung. Yeah, but actually the whole of the organizational design movement is based around Jungian archetypes and concepts of inner and outer and, and the subconscious. And kind of like it was brilliant when they came up with it, but we now know it's not true. Yeah, there's much, yeah. much more sophisticated ways of understanding human cognition individually and collectively, including the fact we now know consciousness is a distributed function of which the brain may be a key part, but it's not the only part. The body and social interaction yeah. is part in what Andy Clark calls scaffolding. So people keep getting this wrong. The whole point about science is science knows it's wrong, but has a mechanism to become right. Yes. Yep. And that's what people aren't realizing is when the science moves on, you need to move on with it because now we understand things in a different way. Yep. Um, so I was wondering, you uh, also contributed to the EU Field Guide to Managing Complexity, yep. um, which, um, which, as I understood it, is being used by, uh, you know, governments by in me. Europe. <laughs> yeah, by yep. you as well. <laughs> And also by, by governments in the in the European Union? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, it's, it's really that. It's, it's picking up at the moment. I mean, we published it last year. Yeah. Um, we're now doing a whole body of work around it. In fact, one things we're releasing next week is an assessment process on COVID. So we can assess how okay. people did against the field guide on COVID. Right. So, I mean, that came about okay. because European Union adopted Kinevin as a framework to understand complexity in government. So they allocated a design yeah. team to it, led by Alessandro. And then when COVID hit, Alessandro and I talked, and I basically brained up everything, and Alessandro designed the book. Yeah, so I'm the principal author on yeah. that. And it's actually important because it's the first time a government has endorsed a purely complexity-based approach. Yeah, and yeah. so that makes it less risky for people to adopt the ideas. Yeah, And the, the system's thinking people don't like it. Yeah, if you you can see the blog exchange between me and Michael Jackson, which I'm still waiting for a response on. Oh, um, I want to see that one. I haven't uh, seen it. Uh, if, if go and look back on my blog and look at because I responded to his comments <clears throat> in LinkedIn in blog posts. Yeah, and we went backwards and forwards okay. to it. I mean, Mike, Jack, we're both visiting chairs at Hull University. We get on. We both went to Lancaster University. So there, this is a. I keep saying to people, this is a, a, an interesting debate between peers. It's not the sort of crap stuff you have with, you know, God help us, Al Shalom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a sensible yeah. discussion. People know we're different, so we're discussing the differences and getting rid of the misconceptions. Yeah. But the, the field guide is really important because it lays out for the first time a, a peer. It's not just a crisis management book. It's a complexity management book if you remove the first stage. Okay. And it talks about building... Yeah a resilient system by building systems that can respond to things you can't predict. Yeah, and, and that yeah. has major implications. It's, it's, it's you get the dispositional state of the system right. So that's why it talks about informal networks, human sensor networks, yeah. knowledge mapping at the final level of granularity. It says prepare the system to respond to the unexpected. Don't try and anticipate what you can't anticipate. Yeah, but it's, it's not going like, uh, like at least in my head, right? And when I talk to some managers or some directors or whatever, they all have this sense of they need to control things. And 
I don't per se understand it, but then it goes totally against this philosophy that I need to control and predict. Well, so basically, that's what you say. And I often tell them two things. First of all, there are things you can manage and control and things you need to monitor. So some of this is giving them the right language, right? Um, mm -hmm. The other thing is kind of like the, the, the origins of the word manage come from an Italian word, yeah? Um, which means the ability to ride a horse in dressage. It then gets corrupted by the French to mean household management. I mean, many things have been corrupted by the French, not as many as by the English. But, <laughs> and, and that's how it's currently used, right? So this is menage or manage, right? So when they were saying a yeah. complex system, it's menage. In an order system, it's manage, right? And if you're riding a horse, you're still in control, but not in control in the way out you are of a household budget, right? And yeah, if no, you try yeah. and control emergent properties, you are actually out of control. You've just got a delusion of it. Yeah. And remember, yes. I mean, we're seeing this switch happen at the moment. It's why we went open source, because we went from selling to early adopters. So we went from, so there's an old adage in software, right? You, in the early adopter, you sell to make. I yeah. keep saying this to VCs, you shouldn't fund people with software ideas. If it's a really good idea, two and a half percent of the market will fund it by buying it. And that will force the idea to co-evolve with reality. And then when you flip out of that, yeah. you have to build to build to sell. Yeah. So that's yeah. where we are with complexity at the moment. It's taken off like systems thinking took off in the 80s. It went from obscure academic idea to dominant concept in three to four years. And COVID has just triggered that faster. So the EU field guide gives people a framework. And it basically says you need to be in control but you need to understand what you can actually control. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that distinction is definitely, uh, I guess the key. <laughs> you need to understand what you need to be in control. And uh, um, because you know, I'm a software engineer, um, you know, by trade, I guess. Um, and uh, open source to me also means being able to, uh, you know, get suggestions and improvements from, from other people, not necessarily from, from, you know, the people who originally created it or maintaining it. Uh, do you also, uh, you know, accept improvements to, yeah, to the, so we, to we the frameworks? So all the methods in the EU field guide are in an open source wiki. Anybody can join them. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's there. Now, if people sort of tried to make it systems thinking, we might get nasty about it. But the idea, and so for example, yeah. I mean, we, we've got a major development. One of the methods in the EU field guide is called a trioptican, right? Which I, okay. I've developed over about four or five years. Hmm? Okay, so it involves, it's a way of resolving disputes between experts or of integrating different bodies of knowledge. And it's a structured dance okay. which can take a day or four days where you have principal experts and, you know, people like you might have the professor, but then have their PhD students in the group. And it's a highly orchestrated dance that takes, which can be done. So for example, in the COVID crisis, we had a major conflict between epidemiology and behavioral scientists and political needs. Yeah. So the trioptican yeah. is designed to get that over fast and create new syntheses. So we put that into the open source wiki and Colin did a brilliant animation. Which you can have a look at it's in it. And he'd never have done that if it wasn't open source. Yeah. So you, you did they you, use it at the European Union? Union? Yeah. Did they use this at the European Union with the Corona or at the government? Uh, no, because we published it after the coronavirus hit. All right. Um, uh, we're currently in a project, um, a big narrative-based project to understand citizen engagement. So that's come out of the EU field guide. Uh, we just put a white paper up on that on the website. So that program is currently running with the EU and about to run in the US. Yeah? So okay. I think the key thing to understand about the field guide is it gives a structure of how you manage an actual crisis. But all of the methods and tools in it are standalone, and you can pick up some for some things and for other things. It's it's the same as I'm talking about an Agile. So the kit we're creating for yeah. the EU field guide is hexagons with yeah. methods and tools. And you put them together the in toolbox. nations. Yeah, you, you don't have a standard recipe that you approach. It's that chef metaphor yeah, rather than recipe book metaphor. And are those methods yeah. things you already proven? Did you try them out yourself, or how does that work? Yeah, it's um, 
I was saying to somebody the other day, I think if I look back at my career, I've been a method, I'm primarily a methodologist who actually is also a theorist, rather than a theorist who creates methods. Okay. So my initial curiosity is always to develop something which can produce replicable results, what we now call a constructor. So most of the methods that you'll see on the website, I developed on my feet in live in workshops with clients. Yeah, and then okay. modified them as they worked. So our approach is we take natural science as a constraint. We then develop a method consistent with what the natural science says, and then we modify it in practice. Mm. So we don't do this is a this is what we we're talking about with Nora last night. This is an abductive process, not an inductive process. Yeah, and abduction is far more important for invention than induction. Yeah, so all the case-based approaches are inductive, and that assumes stability. Abduction handles unstable changing environments, and actually human beings are better at abduction than we are at induction. Um, it, mm. it comes, it's one of the roles of art, so you've got guitars hung behind you. We now know that music and art yeah. came before language in human evolution. And it looks like yeah. its reason is art, art, art separates you from the physical so you can see novelty. That's what abstraction does. Okay. Right. Which is why yeah. an overfocus on STEM education is actually quite dangerous. Yeah. So that ability to abstract and make novel connections is really good. That's abduction. The downside is it makes us prone to conspiracy theories. Okay. I mean, uh, and, yeah. and you can see that because people see novel connections. Yeah. And yeah, the, yeah. this the thing which was the task I was set by John Poindexter, who you might remember was Reagan's NSA, right? And I worked for him for about seven years on DARPA programs. And the problem he gave me is how do you solve the problem of abduction? So if you look yeah. at the build up to a terrorist event, somebody always spots a novel connection. Yeah. So in the build up to 9-11, okay. somebody spotted people who've been trained to fly, take off and fly, but not land. Now, after 9-11, you see the significance. But before 9-11, it's one of thousands of reports coming in. So the issue yep. is, how is your intuitive connection between apparently unconnected things more coherent than somebody else's? And that's what we worked on. And that's where we created the concept of human sensor networks and high abstraction metadata. Yeah? And that actually took five or six years. And it took five or six years to create it and three or four years to make it simple. It, it takes a long time to make things simple. And that's now part of the EU field guide, human sensor networks. So what human sensor networks mean is you find the 17% and you find them in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Is this so, also where, like, where the apex predator theory comes from? Is that the yeah, that's not called flexures curves because the oh. apex predator is one part of the ecosystem. You've also got keystone species and scavengers and such like so that's now called Fletcher's Curves as a framework. Yeah. But yeah, that's the principle. Right? Okay. Uh, if I if I go back a bit to the novelty, because it triggered me part of the things that I've seen it, and I also sp we spoke in the past with uh, what Lisa did a train with him with Daniel Mazak, and uh, and I think I saw a few of your tweets about that. It's like in the sense of rituals, right? Like rituals can actually change people. Yeah. And I don't know why I've been seeing this more often nowadays written in places. Uh, but yeah, I haven't, I think, read enough. So what, what does, how important it is actually for uh, us vital, in the transformation changes, of also an organization? It changes cognitive activation. Yeah. So th this actually why you don't see the gorilla is you're scanning about 5% of what's in front of you, max. Most yeah. of the time it's less than that. Yeah. And that triggers a series of memories in your body, your brain, and your social interactions. And you blend those together, and the first blend which fits you apply. This happens in nanoseconds. Yeah. So we do a first fit pattern match, not a best fit pattern match. And that's the point about the early hominoids on the savannas of Africa. Yeah, you have to you have to privilege your most recent experiences and respond quickly, right? So that's the way we make decisions. Yep. Now, what ritual does is it changes the cognitive activation pattern. So you're using a different 5% in a different set of blends. So I first, one of the first big projects I did on this was in New Zealand. Yeah. So we, we had an off-road safety project in IBM. And I thought off-road New Zealand, Lord of the Rings territory, helicopters, mountains, this is going to be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It turned out to be bloody Wellington Harbor at six o'clock in the morning in winter, which is bloody freezing. <laughs> right? 
and we put students onto cabs for two for three weeks. We had students in lorries driving around with lorry drivers helping them out as ethnographers, and we found that something like eighty、um, percent of accidents happened in the first ten to fifteen minutes after the lorry arrived at the dock. Yeah, and、mm-hmm. when we looked at that, what、okay. was happening is the cognitive activation pattern had been driver. Yeah. So when you get into your car, you go through little rituals which trigger a set of actions. Yeah, takes about two years, by、yeah. the way, which is why Australians don't let kids drive on motorways or without elderly passengers for two years. Right, because you have to build the、yeah. body brain reaction. Right,、and、it does take about two two and a half、yeah. years to do it, like London taxi drivers. So we identified that that was the problem that they weren't thinking like loaders. So what we did is we gave them heated belts, which they had to plug in, and you weren't allowed to unload your lorry till you strapped on your heated belt. And then we linked the training in how to load and unload with the belt, and of course the belt stiffened the back as well, and it was warm. And we halved accidents、yep. because it basically we triggered the switch from driver to loader faster. And you see the same when a military person will tell you the minute they put on uniform they think differently. And one of the projects I did with the Singapore、yeah. police, we ended up with them all keeping uniform in their cupboards. For some meetings, they put their uniforms on in headquarters because they would genuinely think and act differently to each other. Operating theatres the same. The scrubbing up process you go through isn't just、yeah. making you cleaner; it's changing your identity from being, you know, Fred Bloggs、yeah. to surgeon. Yeah. So ritual yeah. is key, and one of the things we did do some experiments, and I'd like to do some more. Is getting people to change their clothes before they test code. <laughs> Almost like your 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 tester coat, which probably is a suit. Just a hat is not enough. <laughs> no, a hat is no. Don't don't get me onto Bono. Right? No, it isn't enough. All right, because <laughs> one of the reasons is it's not. I mean, Bono is Bono is brilliant. All right, when he was alive, but he was still in that that field which thought all decisions are made in the brain, which is called the Carte- Cartesian concept of consciousness. We now know about eighty、yeah. percent of the decisions you made are made by your body without you even thinking about it. So you, you need、yeah. to, so ritual has to be physical, yeah, in the way it works. So what 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 would be the difference、uh, then of a ritual and a habit? Ritual, well, initiating rituals is a habit, right? Habits are practices、yeah. which emerge over time. Rituals can disturb habitual behavior, and they can trigger different habits. But the ritual has to be like a community base, or can be a ritual as an individual. Individuals have them, all right. So, I mean, I have it. So, I have different. You know, I, I try and write. All right, I'm trying to get the book out over Christmas.、Um, if I'm writing something for an academic journal, I put on Wagner. If I'm writing something for a popular journal, I put on Verdi or Puccini. And it actually, I write differently in a different style, and I've just trained myself over the years to do that. All right. Um, is this also the reason you put on the Welsh rugby shirt for this podcast? Yeah, you, you've got that on for now. But,、um, yeah, that,、uh, we're, we're in the build-up to the rugby season, all right.、Um, so yeah,、okay. I mean, and when I put my rugby shirt on, I feel differently when I go into the stadium than you know wearing a suit at the opera. So I wouldn't wear、yeah. this to the opera. I just wouldn't feel right. <laughs>、um, no, so I, probably I not. You, So clothing is actually really important for humans, and, and artifacts are. Yeah. So the tools actually contain knowledge. People forget this. Yeah. The to, tools actually include our consciousness in terms of the way they're designed. Yeah. I'm just、okay. thinking about how this could go in practice. I don't think I can sell the developers like guys gonna go on a test、uh, trip. Let's all、uh, put on our test T-shirts and let's go. I don't think no, it's going to fly. Right? That, we ritualise that, so you're, you're suddenly with two people you don't work with, with very different backgrounds for a limited period. That's a ritual. Yeah. And we give people a gamba tool to record what they're learning. So that's a ritual as well. You can do an awful lot. I mean, sorry, I've, I've done a lot in UX design over my over my years. Yeah. Um, and one thing you're looking in UX is to ritualise entry between screens. Yeah, so you, you, the, the screen design, if it's any good, will will trigger different cognitive patterns in the way people respond. So we, we, it's not the software doesn't、yeah. know about this. Yeah, it's just we're, we're less explicit in the way we use it. 
Yeah, so like because, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, we're talking about give me another example, Rachel, right? So we, when I was managing yeah. a software business, when you get to be a manager, right? The higher up you get, the only the only you meet angry and angrier customers. You don't get to meet nice customers. Yeah. So <laughs> I get pulled in on yeah. this project in Whitbridge, which is going really badly wrong. Like, yeah, we, we we got into that. Every time we deliver something, it doesn't work, but it is getting better, and the client has lost confidence. You know those sort of situations. So yeah. I went up with my oh, marketing yeah. manager, Kath, to try and resolve this. All right. So she's got no software experience at all, but she's an OR consultant. All right. And on the way up, we stopped off at a costume hire and bought an elephant suit. And okay. yeah, we, we, I got away with this. We walked into the rooms. We got you know, 30 bloody coders in rooms. Yeah. And I said, now, anybody who releases anything to the client without it being tested three times by different people has to wear this suit. And it was extremely effective. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we did the same at a big workshop. Yeah, I remember in, something similar. Yeah. We did the same at a big workshop in New Zealand. We needed people not to make assumptions. So um, New Zealanders yeah. feel about Australians like the Welsh feel about the English. So I took an Australian rugby shirt in. And I said, anybody at any stage in this workshop says, I know what we should do, or I know what's happening, has to wear this shirt. And then they're freed from their task to hunt somebody else making the same mistake. And if anybody wears the shirt for more than five minutes, we'll take a picture of them, right? Now, I made a couple of IBM people make a mistake up front. But that was an extremely effective technique, and it was the use of ritual, yeah? And to some extent, humor, right? To change the way yeah. that people think yeah. about it. And it's actually what open space doesn't do very well. It's one of my big disagreements with Dan. I actually think open space is too easy to manipulate because the law of two feet. But can't, can't you merge both? No, I, I mean, I, I've used open space, all right? But the trouble is the law of two feet means you can avoid things you don't want to face up to. So when we do large group, and we've done large groups of two or three thousand, It's a highly ritualized, yeah. constant movement between groups. You have no choice about what you're engaged in, right? And we're constantly changing the way people fix because otherwise it's too easy to manipulate. But yeah. why, why is it bad that I can run away from something that I don't perceive feel because then you're aligned to it? Well, what happens, all right, is first of all, it means you do things you're comfortable with, which is actually a really bad thing in innovation or crisis management. Secondly, it encourages yeah. people to not upset people so that more people come to their open space area. Yeah, so it rewards no, somebody. I, I can see that happen. Who's, who's more interested in manipulating people than the output. And you know, remember this thing, we're trying to find the 17%, right? 17, yeah. People in the 17% don't survive open space because they're saying things because are uncomfortable and people will move elsewhere. Okay. There's and actually I have to bring Daniel back to ask these questions. There's a lovely film that's worth looking at, yeah, um, which is uh, it's called The Journey. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a fictionalized version of something that's actually happened in the peace process in Northern Ireland, where the, mm -hmm. the negotiation was going on, and MI5, which is our internal security, arranged. Yeah to have Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, who were the leaders of both sides, who hated, you know, never, they'd never talked before, forced them into, a, into a, a car by accident and dumped them in a forest on their own for three hours. With a, with a yes. you know, I mean, it was, it, was, it was deliberately staged and monitored, all right? And because they had no choice, they found a way through. And that was the breakthrough moment, yep. yeah? But yep. if they had the law of two feet, you wouldn't have had that. And, and this is a big disagreement. And well, Dan, Dan doesn't really talk with people who disagree that much. Is fundamentally, you can't take an entire system based on, on what people want to volunteer to do. Sorry, that doesn't work for human beings, right? It would not work with teenagers. Come on, guys, just think about kids all the time, all right? There's times when you have to make them do things or make them meet people from different backgrounds. So open... And, and, yeah. It was interesting. There was going to be a debate between me and um, the open source guy, but that kind of like got stopped. I never understood why it got stopped because I have a lot of time for, for the guy who created open source. Like, like, it's like um, 
the guy who created appreciative inquiry, right? There's some brilliant stuff in what they did. Yeah. But when their methods are industrialized, that's when it goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But Interesting. I, I don't get it because you say if you want, uh, you invite people to do something, they won't do it because they are not, well, and then people they leave or you can play the game. Not but, insufficient volume. So, for example, if we don't have two days. But it's also the other way around. But it's also the other way around. If you force people to do something, they will also leave. If they don't yeah, want to do not it. Not necessarily, actually. Um, the thing is, you, people respond to curiosity and not threat. So, for example, when we do a large group, all right, people are put into groups with people they're familiar with. And then over the next day or two yeah. days, they're never in one group for more than an hour before they're broken into another group. Yeah? And they all have tasks, and we keep them occupied. I've and the only time we had people walk out, was a group of headmasters in Northern Territories in Australia who said they didn't understand the process. Every time that they got a group sorted out, they were forced to move into another group. I mean, they were actually turned out to the problem. And we won that one because the Indigenous people, for the first time ever, took part in a workshop because I got that technique from working in Kakadu with Indigenous knowledge. It's ritualized conflict to make sure you have enough diversity yeah. in scanning. Yeah? And, yeah, it, it's... It, yeah, but then, the marginalization then, is actually like, quite dangerous. Yeah. If you want consent, I, I get it, right? I understand, then I partially agree. If you want, if you want, if you want consensus, or you want ad hoc collaboration about things people are interested in, which what Agile do with open space, they basically made a series of sprints. It's fine. If you want to deal with intractable problems or difficult problems. And you want to face up to things which are, are interesting, you want novelty, it doesn't work. It's not that it's wrong, it's right within context. No, no, yeah. I get that. I'm, I, 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 the part that I'm also like uh, a bit skeptical about is that uh, because it comes with the idea of like coercing people to do something they don't want, right? And then I can imagine the resistance coming out of that and then you also don't get the novelty. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense in the sense of like, yeah, if you invite people, you're just going to get this common uh, mindset and they're going to deviate and you're not going to have enough hard discussions. But then how do you solve the part that if you don't have, let's say, well, the term of psychological safety, people are also not going to be able to join those and make this thing a success. Well, you, you don't you don't make people psychologically exposed. Right? I don't buy the whole psychological safety movement. Right. I think there's problems on that. But you don't put people into into stressful positions, all right? So you're putting them into groups, giving them tasks, then breaking them up, putting them together with other people more. So it's a constant succession of things which they're yep. curious about, which they produce output, and there's no threat involved in that. And you do things mm -hmm. like, the uh, famous one I did is we, we had two or three people trying to dominate the group. So I asked each group at that point to nominate one person for a key new group who would be designing the agenda for the next day. So, of course, the arrogant bastards all got themselves nominated and we put them in a room and gave them some tasks, repeated that three times, and then we had some really powerful stuff from the group. So if you're managing these things, the rule is you mustn't tell people how they should behave. You must make it easy for them to flow and constant novelty human beings respond really well to. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, I mean, last last one I'm doing this, we ended up with, I think, 500 action forms on the wall. So we did an entire okay. business wow. strategy in two days with 500 people involved. And the executives came in and authorized all the projects. And then we just wrote it up as a fancy strategy after the event. And that really motivated so, people. We were focused not on idealistic statements about what the company should be like. We were focused on deeply pragmatic right. projects about things that mattered to them. And they actually produced things which would make a difference. And, and that's what human beings respond to. What would you recommend reading around that part of the subject that we spoke that about? We because trained, like, I'm quite intrigued. That, that we, we got methods like ritual descent. We documented um, that one will will apprentice you, but we won't, we won't do it any other way. Because what we found is people, once you've done it three or four times, you know, it will all come together in the last two hours, but people panic yeah. or they've been through it. So that that's an apprentice model. Okay. What makes them panic? 
Oh, like the realization. I, I, I remember did this one with a bunch of IBM, a very senior IBM consultant, yeah, and he'd come along because he was curious in what I was doing. And I was I was running the workshop yeah. for two days, and I wasn't going to let anybody come up with any conclusion or action until the final two hours, right? Because you want to avoid premature convergence. And the trouble is, he's been yeah. trained yeah. That at the end of day one. You haven't got most of the things sorted. It's not going to have a delivery to the client. So he panicked and tried to take over. And to be honest, the group rejected it and <laughs> knew they would, all right? And then he just sat and listened. And he, we ended up writing articles together because he understood what we were doing. But he only understood it when he lived through it. He couldn't understand it in theory. Yeah. And that's your point earlier, yeah. Henry, okay. about habits, all right? People have got into this habit, yeah. progressive incremental delivery. Whereas in complexity, you hold things open for as long as possible and allow them to coalesce right at the end. Right. Yeah. All right. Man, it's been, a, it's been an insightful hour for me. Uh, I've learned yeah. a lot about, uh, you know, complexity and, uh, you know, the Kinefin framework and everything you spoke about. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess it's about time we, uh, we close it off for, uh, for today. Uh, yeah. So Dave, do you have any, you know, final things to say or anything you would, would uh, like the audience to know? Uh, I don't know, maybe the book um, you, were, you are writing or. Well, I'm building this final framework at the moment. So Kinevin is more or less stable now. Mm -hmm. It took 20 years, but the last mm -hmm. is when you build frameworks, if you do them incrementally, there are things you're not comfortable with. And I was never comfortable with this order. But that got resolved right. last year yeah, with the apparatic. Okay. So there's no unresolved conflicts in Kinevin anymore. So that's stable. Yeah. That's just curves okay. is stable. The yep. big one I'm working on is the asteroid model, which is based on constructor theory right. in physics. Yeah. And that has got me really excited okay. because that's a completely new approach. So if you keep an eye on the blog, that will come out. The other reason we rebranded the company is we're making a switch from projects to products. Yeah, so we're open right. sourcing okay. as much as we can. So, for example, one of the big things we're pushing out next week, I was on a conference call about it earlier, is a new Gamba for team feedback and automatic generation of data for retrospectives. So that's going out experimentally next week. But the way we're doing any product development is to actually create membership clubs by which people can join as members, which funds the program, hmm. and we co-evolve it. Yeah. I don't want to do anything where we decide what it should be and impose it. So we've got the idea, we've got yeah. the structure. Yeah. Then we do the co-evolution. So if you keep an eye on the website, you'll see a lot of those go up. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be sure to include the, the website uh, in the description of the uh, the episodes. Uh, and I'll yeah. try to get you and Daniel to have this conversation. Yeah. I think maybe it's going to be very interesting. Maybe Peter as well. Always been happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So we'll see if we can arrange that. Uh, so for now, I want to thank uh, thank you very much, uh, Dave. And uh, I also want to thank the listener for uh, joining in. Uh, if you have any questions, you can uh, send us an email at uh, podcast at forscouts.nl or contact us on Twitter uh, at forscouts. Uh, Dave, do, can people uh, contact you on Twitter uh, as well? Yeah, I need to find on social media or the website. Yeah. Um, so the, All right. the and, uh, got, you can email people there and the team will pick it up. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks the, again. And I'm, yeah. I'm not allowed I'm managing you. Anymore. The team do it for me. So. <laughs> and if you find him on Twitter, just argue with him. That's fine. That's yeah. Cool. All right. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much and see you guys next time. Bye bye.